We have to be stakeholder centered. We have to focus on the needs of board members, community members, volunteers, internal, external, all the way around our stakeholders before we start to create these programs, policies, projects. Because I mean, I would tell you honestly, 50% of what organizations bring me in to build, we never build. Really? Never the light of day. Absolutely. They say, wow. we've got this idea, you should come and help us. Or we have this problem. We have these things in our back pocket that we think will work. The minute they touch stakeholders, they don't work. They won't create impact. There's something mm. else going on mm. and organizations don't know those skills. Welcome to the Responsive Nonprofit Podcast, brought to you by Virtuous. Responsive nonprofits are the organizations leading with innovation to grow giving and impact. Join us each week in spirited conversation with the leading voices across philanthropy, fundraising, and nonprofit technology. Subscribe on your favorite stations or visit us at virtuous.org backslash podcast. All right. Well, we are back. We've got a really fun one for you today. I'm here with my new friend, Heather Hiscox, and she's a frustrated change maker. She's got a lot of labels that she's been telling us. And I, I, this is going to be really fun because I think I'm going to resonate with a lot of this. And I think our listeners will too. But she's the CEO and founder of Pause for Change. She's also the creator of what's called the Pause Framework that we're going to dive into and really expand on that. And she's got a new book. It's called No More Status Quo and just recently came out in the beginning of February. Heather, welcome to the show. I'm so pumped that you're here with us. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here too. Yeah. Did I get that right? Frustrated change maker? Yes. Yes, that's right. That's what I am. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, <laughs> I love it. Hashtag frustrated change maker. That's the thread I think that I'm finding that kind of carries throughout all of the projects and the book and the organization that you lead. So I guess to start, just for people who aren't aware of, of your work and what you do yet, can you just give us a little bit, let's define a few of these things. What is pause for change? Let's start with that. Yeah, pause for change is my, you know, for lack of a better term, like my consulting practice. I know some people don't really like that box, but that's my company. And that's the umbrella under which I help organizations. I work with nonprofits, local governments, and philanthropic foundations to help them learn new problem-solving skills. So that typically looks like, you know, helping with facilitation, doing speaking events, leading workshops and trainings, but also doing deep dives and intensive culture work with those types of organizations for up to three to six months or more, okay. resulting at the highest level in helping train the trainer model, like helping okay. their professionals within the organization have their own innovation and change champions using the pause framework. Gotcha. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. And then how does that play with the Possibility Project? Because I know you've got another thing called Possibility Project. And I love when I looked at the site, it says a community of good troublemakers. So <laughs> I was like, okay, we got to learn more about what that is. Yes. Yes. Possibility Project was really, it was a passion project born out of COVID, early COVID. My co-founder at the time, Devin Davey, she's no longer with the project, but we were having these really nourishing conversations right after March of 2020 with close friends in our network, just saying like, what are you seeing? We're, you know, we're so excited by all this disruption and these big and bold questions that are being asked of philanthropy and asked of social change. 
wow, you know, how might we scale these conversations so we're just not, you know, selfishly enjoying them and and helping our our mental state really be supported? How do we just create a, a space, a container to have these types of conversations? And let's talk about this stuff as I often joke that you normally have to sit in like the back of the cafe and like uh, look over the booth and make sure no one's around. Like you want to talk right. about the stuff, right? Okay. The stuff that you like, it may not be polite. There might be some cursing. We're really going to call stuff out. We wanted to do that together in the community of people that also wanted to talk about those things. So we're on our, gosh, I think 41st episode. Oh, wow. Okay. They're panel conversations where we have amazing leaders and practitioners and folks in social change that get together around a topic. And it's just been awesome. That's cool. So it's almost like an online talk show is what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Normally we have two or three people per panel. Okay. And then every so often we have special events where we'll have one person feature that will lead a workshop or some special activity. But we have 2000 people on the mailing list and over 800 folks in the LinkedIn mm. group. Mm. And it just keeps expanding and growing because people want this. They want to have these bold conversations and they want to feel supported in that space. Gotcha. Yeah. To me, when you're talking about in the booth, kind of hiding, make sure nobody's listening that to me, that's like the meeting after the meeting, right? I don't know if you're familiar. Yes, <laughs> so, yes, that's what's hard yes. about Zoom meetings all the time. At Virtuous, we're now, you know, we're decentralized and we're all virtual. But the thing I miss about having an office space is that you got that meeting after the meeting where you really talk about what really happened and what really went down and like, what's your vibe and take on this? And that's where you get the the really valuable things come out that oftentimes inform our decision-making, at least for me. Absolutely. And it's also where you feel like you're not alone. Totally. Right. You're like, I'm thinking about this too. I'm asking this question. I'm not satisfied with that answer. I'm not Mm -hmm. satisfied with the current way that we do things. What is going on? Or, you know, this doesn't make sense. And so it's just a space to, to have those chats. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Well, okay. So, I want to dive into the book here soon, and I'm really fascinated. I think our listeners will be really fascinated about the pause framework and the giant triangle of waste. I'm loving your uh, the headlines of each one of these, and so I want to give us time for those. But before we get there, you've got a really unique perspective. You're working with nonprofits. You're working with governments. Sounds like a lot of this has come out of your own personal story, and I was looking through the website, and I saw some pictures of you as a little girl, and then you as a professional and then you now. And I'm like, I'd love to get that context in place before we jump into these other topics. So can you just give us give us the background, like the backstory of, of how you got to do what you're doing now? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite questions to ask other people. Like, how did you arrive to, yeah. to where you are right now? Like, what's your winding journey? Because it's always fascinating. Humans are amazing and fascinating. Hmm. Yeah, it's definitely been a winding journey. The, the pictures you're talking about on the website, you know, the the first one I post, I think I'm like seven or eight. I look so preppy, you know, wearing this like little <laughs> color shirt, totally rocking it. Huge gap in my teeth that I thought would never close. So thank God that happened. <laughs> but since I was a little kid, I was like, I'm going to change the world. That's what I'm going to do. You know, I was raised by a very social justice focused mom okay. and a very practical military dad. And so it was like, how do we dream and make stuff happen? So that mm-hmm. was really the context of growing up and asking big questions, being a troublemaker from an early age, you know, bringing up the stuff in the class that no one was talking about. What was oh, you were that person. Okay. 
Absolutely. I was that person. Wanted to get into political debates, you know, with like random family members at gatherings, right? (laughs) And so I got into the nonprofit field, first doing some grassroots organizing, volunteer work. And then I took a little bit of a an offshoot to that journey because I have a master's in public health focused on health disparities. Good. So for seven years, I worked in clinical research and in program design, development, evaluation, community engagement, all around health issues and topics. And then tried a couple different stints in different other nonprofit organizations. The work that I do now and why I'm so passionate about it is I was so disillusioned and frustrated by what I saw happening Hmm. across the sector, across my local ecosystem, across what I saw, you know, across the entire sector ecosystem. Just this use of totally ineffective and inefficient problem solving skills, the ways that we create programs the ways that we initiate projects, the ways that we engage with community, the ways that our organizational cultures function. I just saw over and over again how broken it was. And as I got more into design and other modalities like human-centered design, lean startup, lean innovation, I realized that our sector is designed specifically to function the way that it does, and it can be redesigned. It can be reimagined. So that's what I see my role kind of transitioning from like being a clueless little little kid that wants to like do stuff to just being a frustrated big mouth. <laughs> now it's like, I know how to make the change. Like now I know I've spent over 10 years crafting this framework that really addresses my own frustration, my own experiences mm. of seeing what was broken and then imagining and, and trying out these little tests and to see what could be different. So that's, it's really, I was solving my own problem and it just happened to oh. help a lot of other people solve their problem. I find that fascinating. I'm thinking about my own journey and I started multiple nonprofits and they were always out of like, this is an injustice. This is wrong. Somebody should do something about this. How do we right the wrongs of this injustice in society? Let's go start it, right? And I think that's probably the case for many of the founders that are listening to this. It usually always is, right? But then the organization has to be built, and that's when the machine begins to be created, and that's when we start running into inefficiencies and settling, I I would imagine, for status quo and the decisions and thought processes that got us there in the first place are somehow those, the volumes turned down on those and we're now running in a different direction. And it was similar to me starting my, uh, my first startup as well. And I call it like a prophetic startup where you're like, that's wrong. How do we have impact good? How do we make a social enterprise and go do this? But I, I imagine, is that kind of the storybook of what you run into with many of the nonprofits that you work with? Yeah. And I, you know, it's, uh, I try to apply, I I teach it and I try to apply and it's hard, deep empathy and understanding, right? Right. For what leaders are going through, what founders go through. I've created five ventures as a social entrepreneur. Like I get, I get that founder experience, Mm -hmm. but also not letting folks off the hook, right? Saying like, I know your work is hard. I have been there. I know it's so complex and you still have to work differently. You have to stop burying your head in the sand, which I see a lot of leaders and organizations doing, of just waiting for things to pass or transition. And that's why I think COVID was so fascinating to me, because everyone was forced to change. Hmm. But what I've seen is a lot of regression. A lot of folks are going back to cozy. They want to go back to 2019. All of that disruption, all those promises, all those new visions and and imaginings just went back. Hmm. People reverted. Yeah, I think that 
to people's credit, like everyone's working so hard and as organizations yeah. get bigger, they get more siloed, right. they get hierarchical, they have all these processes and structures that are not co-designed with internal or usually external stakeholders. So you have leaders making decisions out of detachment. Okay. You have organizational cultures that are just becoming more deeply entrenched in disconnection. So that's a lot of the work that I do is not just teaching the skills, but bringing the humanity to the organization and saying, I got you. Like, I see you. I understand what this is. And it's hard and it's uncertain and you're not alone. And there's ways that you can do better and with support. Gotcha. Yeah. So you're really digging in on maybe the dysfunction, the inefficiencies, the what is reverting us back to status quo work and helping to point that out and then direct people to like, there is a better way. There is, it's not as hard as you think, right? I, I run into that a lot of times where I think it's not that we're lazy as organizational leaders, because you're to your point, we're trying as hard as we can, but there is that gravitational pull back towards what's always been done before. And I don't know, I don't quite get why that is, but maybe it's just easier. I don't, yeah. I think it's, we don't know any different. And it's not saying we're bozos just wandering around. Like, we just don't know. Like, when I worked in the nonprofit sector, I had never heard of Lean Startup. I had never heard of the business model canvas. I never heard of what was happening in that culture because how would I lift my head up and have time for that? But I just got involved in my local startup culture and then that expanded. And then I thought, oh, like these are really interesting theoretical practices and models. They weren't designed for social change. They were designed for, you know, new product designs and launches. But how might I take that and apply it to social Hmm. change? I, you know, we test these things. I mean, I was not aware and to take them as is just doesn't work. Honestly, it's hard to make that overlay and apply them to social change. So I think that's what people need is they need just to learn the new skills. And many of the systems, you know, a lot of the design practices and other things are really, they feel overwhelming. They're really large. And I would even argue in some cases overbuilt. There's tons of tools. There's a whole vernacular you have to learn. And there's a whole culture and vibe around it, mystery. And it's not. You can make it really simple. So that's also what I focus on with the framework is how do I be tool-less Hmm. So my teams aren't like, uh oh, we didn't get to the printer. Now we can't innovate. Like, no, <laughs> get a piece of paper and put an X on it. Let's go, right? Get some <laughs> stickers and throw them on the wall, and then get a pen, whatever you got. Let's go. Yeah. And so making them toolless, and just making them very clear cut and common sense, because so many of those other systems and practices, I feel like they've made themselves larger to justify their own existence and growth. Yeah. yeah. And try to like prove their quality, but. It's the simplicity that gets to the core, that gets to the system, that gets mm-hmm. to the root, that gets to the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we we dizzy ourselves and busy ourselves with all this noise and extra stuff that we actually don't need to uncover the truth of how we need to act differently. Interesting. And I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but I'm going to, <laughs> I don't mean to but I will. For our listeners who primarily in the nonprofit sector, maybe they haven't heard of lean startup before. Do you have like a pretty like a succinct kind of definition of what that is? Yes, absolutely. And it, it it's it is infused into the framework that I that I use. Okay. At the core, how I think of it is, I mean, there's a couple of ways that I think about it. Is don't you're not just creating a business plan or you have this idea and you're going to go launch a business. You're going to go launch a new venture, a new program or project you're going to go through a different process where you're going to map out and be very clear 
about what are all the components that go into it? And at its core and at its root, how do I start with stakeholders first? And in that case with, with Lean Startup, it's, you know, customers. How do I be mm-hmm. customer-centered? How do I go do, you know, deep learning and understanding with my potential customers so that I can create a really valuable product? And then how do I not build the product and go wandering around potentially wasting money and time? But how do I build with, you know, minimum viable product? Yep, how do yep. I build that first taste of value? that does create value, but it's not the whole thing. And then how do I continue to learn with my customer? So I teach, I I infuse that into the framework in the ways that we have to be stakeholder centered. We have to focus on the needs of board members, community members, volunteers, internal, external, all the way around our stakeholders Mm -hmm. before we start to create these programs, policies, projects, because I mean, I would tell you honestly, 50% of what organizations bring me in to build, we never build. It never sees the light of day. Absolutely. They say, we've got this idea. You should come and help us. Or we have this problem. We have these things in our back pocket that we think will work. The minute they touch stakeholders, they don't work. They won't create impact. There's something Mm. else going on. Mm. And organizations don't know those skills. So I kind of think about it almost like a before and after. Yeah. If you're using current problem solving, you're just going to build based on a hunch hmm. or a best practice that you copy and paste from somewhere else that right. you don't. Oh yeah, to, yeah. Right? So and so is doing this. We should do it. Yeah. Oh, totally. Even if like you're on different parts of the country or the world, my gosh, like you have to test that stuff, and then you just build it and you wait to see what happens. Yeah. Like you might spend <laughs> a year, and then you're like, okay, let's see who comes to the event. Who right. signs up for the program right. and like right. four people show up? That is not okay. And that is happening at scale mm. in every community, in every state, in every part of the world, right? So that's what makes me slightly infuriated, but hopeful that okay. that, that cannot stand. Like we cannot mm. keep doing that, that we're just wandering around hoping, writing these grants, launching these things without any validation. Right. Or just for what we're even building. Okay. So yeah, that you can mm. tell you got me fired up. That feels <laughs> <laughs> Heather, I've got this idea. It's called the ice bucket <laughs> challenge and everyone's yeah. done it, but we're going to dump tomatoes on our head instead. And it's going <laughs> to turn into millions of dollars and we got to do it. Exactly. No, all right. So I know that it sounds like we've led a little bit into your framework, but let's, I'd love to get the pause framework and begin to define a little bit of that for our listeners. And I'm really curious is it is each letter a, a different category inside of the framework, or how does it work? Yes, it is an acronym. I know okay. it seems kind of dorky, but I couldn't help myself. Hey, no, it um, works. It's memorable. Pause. I wanted people to remember it. Like, and, for, and also, it came out of that was the number one advice I was giving to every client was like, hold up, stop, pause, okay. breathe, think critically. Just take a minute because that's one of the number one feedback that I've gotten from most of my clients. This is the most time I've ever had to work on something in like a consistent way. I'm not doing 8 million things in one day. I can actually spend the entire day deeply understanding my challenge, my stakeholders, talking to people, doing the research, you know, making evidence-informed decisions. So that's really where it came from. So yes, each letter stands for something. The P is package the challenge. And that in nuts and bolts is just understanding what is the challenge. And it's funny when I have a team of five people and I have them all right on a sticky, what's the challenge? I get five different things. Oh, I, I imagine. Yeah. 
Yeah. So like we have to start with alignment because we can't create something out of alignment, right? We can't start with a weak and shaky foundation. So we package the challenge. What is the challenge? Who are all the stakeholders impacted? So we lay that out and then we choose one stakeholder to start with first because we often try to make a one size fits all potential solution where everyone must benefit and we know it's not true. And that is so wasteful. Hmm. And then the next step is a assess uncertainty. I noticed it was a game changing bit that we added to the framework in the early days where we had to get let people and give them permission to identify what they didn't know. Okay. People were so used to jumping to solution and just acting as if they had the information they needed, they would just start building. But we had to, again, pause, hold people back and say, what do you not know about this challenge? What do you not know about your stakeholder? Let's just name it. There's no shame. It's normal. Your bias and your positionality and the lens in which you use to see the world, you're not going to see it from their viewpoint. Okay. You're not. It's fine. You're not going to see things the same way as your team members. Let's just focus on it. And so that was really amazing to see how people were like almost excited to identify what they didn't know. And for <laughs> leaders, especially like you never do that, right? You're supposed to be like, I've got oh, you're the guy. It. Yeah. You've got to know it all, right? Absolutely. We- like Weakness if you don't know it oftentimes. Yes. And then we get to acknowledge what do we know, right? We're smart. We're capable folks. We've been around for a while, right? So we get to honor institutional knowledge as well. And then the U is understand stakeholders. Let's take what we don't know and let's go talk to people and let's do it in a way with informed consent. Hmm. Let's do it in a way that is respectful, that is not extractive, that it engages active listening skills, removing our own biases, that changes and transforms our hearts as we listen to others open theirs. So that I love weaving the humanity connection there as well. And then the S is solution testing. Once we've learned from our stakeholders, let's brainstorm abundantly. Right now, what we do in the sector is we say, okay, I've got five bucks. I have five minutes, maybe five staff. What amazing things shall we build? And you don't build amazing things. You don't think about amazing things because we're taught to work in scarcity. So it's encouraging teams to think bold, but then prioritizing those potential solutions and then testing the assumptions that are embedded within those solutions, which Mm. we also never do. We just build as if everything's perfect, right? Right. But we have to really call out and prioritize what must be true for this to create value for our stakeholder. And then E is just really, it stands for evidence-informed decision-making. How do we make decisions based on testing potential solutions, those little baby examples of our solution, not the whole build out solution to get feedback? And how do we make decisions based on that and not pet projects and power and influence and expectation Mm -hmm. of others, usually funders, board members, leaders, status quo, you know, followers? How do we really make decisions based on what we know will work? And when I describe it, it might sound lengthy, but most teams have those answers in less than two days. Really? Okay. Yes. We When we do the deep dive workshops, they get full days. We do some pre-work ahead of time. They talk to stakeholders. They brainstorm the solutions. They start to run their first solution test. I've had teams within the first six hours uncover major ahas that no one ever considered. And mm. so it's um, it's really transformative because it's just a new, activated, energizing way to work. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for leading us through that. Are you typically doing this with the, you know, all of the staff or is this like the leadership team or who's in the room when you're walking them through this process? Yeah, it's usually teams. 
Okay. What happens is someone will bring me in, usually the leader, someone in the organization will bring me in. They're like the project sponsor. And then we say, okay, what's the challenge? Who within the organization touches multiple different components of this challenge and need to be involved and engaged? And then we form a team. And then I love working with teams because there's so many wacky dynamics that sure. emerge. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazing. And I get to have the naysayer sitting right next to the dreamer. Mm. And we get to just say, okay, let's put all that aside and let's put our stakeholders first and let's learn together in this whole new way. And it's really amazing how employees get so engaged and how teams become so rapidly cohesive and how people are really transformed as individuals from the inside out. It's, um, it's That's like my favorite part of the work is watching what happens. This episode is brought to you by Virtuous. Are you stuck using outdated, slow, and redundant technology to power your nonprofit? It's time to make the switch. Virtuous gives your organization the fundraising, volunteer, and marketing tools you need to create a more responsive donor experience and grow giving. Want to learn more? Get a personalized demo today at virtuous.org demo. That's virtuous.org demo. And so earlier you said, I don't know if I get this right, but 50% of ideas never make it to fruition, right? Like it's just wasted resources, wasted time. You know, we we started the rebuild on the whatever it is. And two years later, those people aren't even on the team anymore. And we've had turnover or whatever it might be. You might not have the statistics, but like trend-wise, you take th- people through this process and then then they are launching something that is appropriate for the team. It's got the right team dynamics. It's got the right buy-in from all stakeholders involved. And then I would imagine it's just extraordinarily more successful because you've gone through the process and this, this is how you make lasting impact. Is that kind of the model? Yes, absolutely. Those ideas that, you know, wither away with our learning, which is fine. We celebrate it, even though the teams might feel defeated. We always celebrate that learning because that's what's key. Those usually lead to a better understanding of, oh, we thought stakeholders needed this, but it's actually this. Hmm. Or we were close and we need to modify this. You know, there's just different learning that leads them to that new direction. And absolutely, when they leave the two days, the teams do a presentation. Okay. They do. The first day, we have leaders and others that are intrigued, but not on the team, come join like little overviews so they get a taste. And then we have them come back at the end of day two, and they get a presentation of all that happened. And people are usually shocked I'm... at the <laughs> learning, the amount of like stuff on the wall and the energy of the people in the room that everyone just gets like, oh, so excited. And then I, I coach those teams for t- um, 12 weeks. Okay. On app, sometimes it gets extended, you know, it depends. Every every group is different, but we keep working on a weekly basis to keep learning and advancing the knowledge. But someone said once, and I love this, that it's the best way to tell your boss that their idea stinks is to use this framework hmm. because you say, you know, I thought, I also agree that what we thought would make sense, what was logically possible in the logic model or other methods made sense. And, you know, nobody wanted it. It didn't come up in the interviews. It wasn't even a brainstorm solution anymore because we learned all these other things. Here's what we recommend. Here's what we know to be true. Here's what we've tested. We've tested these seven top assumptions. We know this solution creates value Mm. and we know how it does it. And we know like the basics of our initial implementation plan. What do you think? And leaders are usually like, yes, I don't even care what I said before. Yes, let's do that because- Mm. 
we never had that for anything before. We just were like flying blind and, and building, you know, while we're in the air and all those silly things that I hear organizations say all the oh, time. Yes. No, like you can learn in a very short amount of time, hours mm. and weeks, what's mm. actually going to help people. And then mm. you can go build it. Yeah, that's really helpful because you've, you're, you're bite sizing that decision making and all those inputs into a two day period. When I know for me, when I've made decisions to go do big initiatives, it's a gut thing typically. And then you don't end up getting the results and you're like, oh, it's because we had poor execution because I was right, you know, but, <laughs> and I can see how you can, you can right size it. And that's very, very doable. I think that takes the guesswork out of like, this is going to be really long and hard and take way too many resources and make it really bite-sized. I want to jump into, you've got something you talk about called the giant triangle of waste. And I, I <laughs> love that name. And I'm sure this this weaves its way through the framework. Um, but are, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's a visual image, which is not helpful on a podcast, but you can check yeah, yeah. it out. On the- Imagine, yeah. <laughs> Imagine there's a teetering triangle on its point. But <laughs> I, you know, what what I've seen, and I really wanted to express what I experienced and validate other people's experience was this image. And that's what the image captures is the way that we create programs, policies, projects, um, services within the social sector. And that includes nonprofits, local governments, and philanthropy. And so we usually start at the very bottom with a problem, right? There's some uncertainty that comes along with hope and fear. We then go, okay, let's do research. Let's talk to our peers. Let's read the different journals. Let's look at some best practices. Let's grab something. And usually there's some group of people that are assigned with doing the research. And then they go to leaders or leaders make the final decision based on recommendations of their own thinking and their own research. And so leaders decide. And then we go into kind of a fuzzy change management zone or like program build zone where then people are assigned. Okay, you know, you people, you're the ones that are going to build this. Here's the timeline. Um, I want you to start writing the grant proposal. I want you to get ready. We're going to serve X number of people in this amount of time with these deliverables. And here's how we're going to measure it. And this is how much money we need, right? We go so deep and we just build and build and build and build. And then at the very end, there's some sort of ta-da. There's a, you know, a a launch. Great unveiling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Like we literally open doors. We, we offer a service we've never offered before and then we wait. And so stakeholders all the while have been left out of this process. They're standing outside of the triangle. And often, you know, when we get to stakeholders, they say, Oh, are you talking to me? Like, I don't want that. (laughs) I what? Who are you? What? It, it's so interesting how many times stakeholders are really taken aback by what even the service offering could potentially be because it doesn't align. Mm. So we we just build and build and build and we get to this point where there's no turning back. We've already invested months and in some cases years in some of these potential solutions and we just don't ever build in pause points for learning. We don't know how to have different behaviors. We don't know how to use different actions and make different decisions. So that's what I, I wanted that visual representation. And every single time I show it at an event or I put in an article, I get so many comments or people are just like nodding their heads vigorously in the audience because they're like, yes, this, oh gosh, this is what we do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's such a, like a, a very sweet indictment. <laughs> like, Yes. Y'all are making a mess with the most love and the most altruism and best of intentions. Like, I love you. And 
you see how this makes no sense, right? And then people are like, yes, okay. And then it's like, okay, now do the pause skills because that's so much better. And so what, what that does is it intentionally builds in pause points. You stop at each level of the framework and you think, you critically analyze, you have deep, rich conversations, which we rarely get to do also because we work in such a frenzied state to try to help people. So it's really key that we slow down. We go slow to go fast is really how yeah. it is. Yeah. Wow. Super eye-opening. <laughs> and when you explain it, you're like, that makes total sense, you know, but <laughs> but like you're saying, we don't slow down to work through this. And so I imagine those organizations that you work with you know, when you're working through the triangle of waste and also the pause, they're just, I, I'm sure there's ahas all over the room. I, I love it. I love it. The next thing I want to talk about is, okay, so you got this book just came out at the beginning of February. Tell me about it. I'm sure it's all of these concepts that we're talking about packaged in there, but can you give me more insight? I, I imagine you've been doing this for an, a decade is what I'm, I'm hearing. And, and this is all the learnings and experiences and stories that are coming out of that. Yes, yes. And that was why I wanted to write it. You know, before people could just hang out with me in my other structure, where it was like, you you have to pay to hang out for two days plus, right? right. And then you might see me at a workshop and download a couple of things. But I wanted the framework to be accessible. And I wanted to have a, like a fun but serious conversation with other frustrated change makers to say, I was you, I still am frustrated. I, I see you. I understand your perspective. So I would say like, I don't know what proportion, let's say 30% of the book is really, I'm not like disemboweling the sector. That sounds awful, but <laughs> really calling out, right? It's like saying, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense. Why do we do this? Hmm. Who are the players? Why is this happening from my experience and my perspective? And I have a lot of stories and examples of when so many projects have gone off the rails and you know, just, oh, some really clear um, indications of why we need to change. And that I think people will really be able to relate to those stories. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the book is a really detailed breakdown of the framework so that people can use it. They can use it as a guide. And it's full of stories and examples of what this looks like in real life. Because it sounds very like, okay, it sounds nice, but how do you do this on a Tuesday? You know, how do you do this? And you have the board breathing down your neck or you have a funder that has an application, you know, headed your way. Like I get it and you can do it and you can do it efficiently and really effectively. So there's lots of stories about that. And then at the end of each chapter, there's a section called pause and consider. And those are provocative questions. Those are introspective, reflective questions that I hope that practitioners will pause to really review at the end of each chapter, because what I know from being an entrepreneur, what I know from being a practitioner and just a really insatiable learner is that you have to take time to process. You have to take time to analyze how am I responding to this new way of thinking? How do I feel in my body? What's my somatic experience of learning? What big questions am I thinking? How can I apply this to my work? And so I I really, really, really want people, organizations, teams to use the book as a tool to guide them through these new ways of thinking and working. And of course, I'm here to support, but I wanted an, an independent source that could really help people get started on their journey because I know how well it works and how transformative it can be. Yeah, I love that. The the practical application. This is all 
fantastic. You've got new head knowledge and you can talk at a party and talk academics. But if it's not, if it's not turning into practical change in our organizations, you could argue it's not really doing us very much good at all. You know, if it's not being practiced. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Story time. All right. So you've worked with tons of organizations. Talk to me about like a before and after story. Can you double tap on an organization and just people that are listening to this? What has it looked like with organizations you've worked with? And and can you give us a story about one in, in particular? Oh, absolutely. It's one of my favorites. I'll keep them anonymous, but I mean, we've written case studies, you can find them, but it's an organization that was one of the largest in a county, like one of the largest nonprofits in a county. And they received a lot of federal dollars that they would then pass through to other partner agencies within the community. And they knew that their invoicing system, where those organizations every month would supply, you know, records and documents to get paid was really arduous and really frustrating. And they had been talking about doing something about it for like 13 years. Oh, wow. Okay. So (laughs) a foundation in that community paid for seven organizations to go through this group experience. And they were one of the organizations that spent two and a half days and they didn't even get the coaching. It was a different type of experience. It was two and a half concentrated days where they got to learn the framework and practice it and use it. And they said, all right, let's form a team and let's focus on this invoicing process. It's not sexy, but we know that it's causing issues. So when they went and they started talking to some of their partners, we had to address the power dynamic at first because it was essentially their funder. So we right. had to really arm that politeness and you know get deep into what was happening and uh, I'll never forget, they met this one woman, and she was the person at the this smaller organization that was in charge of doing all the paperwork to get everyone paid. And they're watching her go through this system, and they're seeing how difficult it is. And she says, I've never been able to miss the first week of the month ever in my position, because I'm the only one. I've missed weddings, funerals, rescheduled vacations. Wow. Because okay. if I don't do this... I wreck everyone's paycheck essentially. Wow. And when they heard that, they realized like they're like, you know, denying the issue or not focusing on it was really having a human cost. And so they said, all right, our goal is to send this person on vacation at like the second of the month. We're going to make this so simple, so easy. And so they found a person within the organization that was an Excel whiz. They learned all the things that were functional and not. And they started redoing the process and they didn't, they didn't like redesign everything. They would test these little bits and pieces. And we checked in with them a couple of weeks later and they had revised the whole process and they had tested it with so many partners, reignited those relationships, really deepened that trust and communication. And they were saving 800 hours a month. Holy cow. They had tallied it across all of their agencies, how much time savings. So can you imagine those 800 hours a month, those nonprofits across that community got back? That they could do more strategic work. They could engage differently in the community and stakeholders. They could build other bold new projects and programs they didn't have time to do. So that that was just such a great example. And that's a very, you know, not sexy topic. Other times we've worked on, you know, addressing issues with homelessness and literacy and and things like that. But it just shows with simplicity that if you slow down and you engage Mm -hmm. your stakeholder to create value, like that is your goal, you absolutely can achieve it. Wow. That's like an infusion of 800 hours of new resources into your organization, right? Like, how can those now be deployed to further the impact of our mission instead of being (laughs) wasted? 
by inefficiency. I think that's a great story. I love that. And for us, you know, we call this the responsive nonprofit podcast. And part of our responsive framework, the first thing is listening, listening to the client, listening to the consumer, listening to the volunteer, the donor, and then let's then go create donor journeys and then technology to respond to those needs to actually help move the needle on unlocking more generosity. So I think it fits exactly with your model, with what you're doing. Yeah, it just makes so much sense. So I'm, I'm so happy that we're having this conversation. All right. As we come to a close here, this is, and I didn't prep you for this. So this is, you know, okay. she's like, what is happening? I'm ready, I'm ready. We're asking everybody that comes on and I we find this is my favorite part we find so many awesome stories but the question that we have is what does generosity mean to you personally and you can answer that however however you want to but what does generosity mean to you oh gosh I know Just you're on the spot a little bit no no I love it I love that question and when you said it I got such a warmth a warmth in my heart when you when you said it so I would say to me it means love and connection right it, to me, it means humanity. It means saying, I see you. I see that you have need. I see that I can use something that I have, whether it's cash, whether it's support of some kind, whether it's kindness, words, I can do something to support you. I can bring something to you. And then to me, that feels like a gift, right? That you mm-hmm. can offer to someone else that would help them in whatever way it is, right? That's what generosity feels like to me of just saying, what abundance, assets, abilities do I have that every person has that I can offer to another person, another group, another place to improve what life looks like for them? That's why I love it. And that's also, you know, I I spent many years in fundraising and that whole love of humankind, that's what really drew me to it. I have some things I would call out within philanthropy and fundraising, which all of us could probably make a little list, but that's what drew me to it was partnering with other people to help imagine the future together to really enable change in a new way that was really heart connected and wanting to see people's lives transformed. And yeah, that's really what it feels like. Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for that. That's so cool. Wow. There's so much here that we could go in. (laughs) I know that's the reason why you've written a book and why you have change. So I want to encourage our folks to go and check those things out. And so how do we find out more about the book? How do we find out how to get in touch with you? Just tell us a little bit more about where we should be going on, on the internet and how we find yeah. out more. Yeah, the best three websites I would point you to. Okay, three. Here we go. Pauseforchange.com. And it's P-A-U-S-E. Some people ask me if it's like a dog charity or something, <laughs> which is... <laughs> yeah. No, no, no W involved. P-A-U-S-E for change.com. Possibilityproject.org is where the talk show is. You can see every single one of the recordings. It is free and open to anyone and everyone. So please check out the site, sign up on the newsletter. You'll get those notifications. And then the book, to learn more about the book, see a little video. And I'll be adding more to it with, um, there's content that I couldn't include in the book because it would have been way too long and no one would have read it. So uh, I have extra content that I'll be adding that people can download. And you can go to nomorestatusquobook.com. Awesome. Well, Heather, thank you so much. It's been a joy talking to you and I just appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's wonderful. I love what you all do and your team is amazing. Oh, awesome. Thanks. And that's a wrap, folks. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Responsive Nonprofit Podcast. We are so grateful for your time. 
We know how busy you are and consider it a privilege to journey alongside you as you work to make change in our world. We believe in you and would love to hear from you. Projects like this are only as good as the feedback we get, the guests who come on, and all the topics we get to discuss. So if you have an idea, if you know of an impactful guest that must come on the show, or if you want to be a part of the responsive community, check us out over at virtuous.org backslash podcast and join the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite station. Your mission needs your collective talent and passion. So go forth and lead the charge forward and we'll be here cheering you on. We'll see you next week.